Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a show that looks at the way technology, politics, and policy impacts the world around us, the tools we use, the way services are delivered, and how we talk about and set policy all shape our society. We'll gather around and have a chat about these things together and more. Either that, or maybe I'll rant about a topic for a while. Before we get started, I do want to let you all know that we've started a Discord for the podcast. There will be a link with an invite down in the episode description. Do feel free to go check that out. It's a small community right now, but hoping to grow it. It's a great way to reach out to me and let me know things that you might want us to cover, or to just hang out and talk about civic tech. Anyway, let's go ahead and start the show. Thank you both for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what you do? Hi, my name is Rohan Bobe. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Nava. I've uh, been with the company since the very beginning, uh, about eight years now, and uh, do all kinds of things. Happy to talk about them and be with you today. Yeah, hey, uh, this is Sha Huang. Um, I'm the COO here at Nava and also one of the co-founders. Uh, also, yeah, crossing that crossing that eight-year line um, and have worn a variety of hats through through the years. But yeah, excited for this conversation today. For each of you, what would you say is your personal why? You know, that thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do. That's a great question. I, for me, the, the thing that I come back to uh, over the longer arc of Nava's work is I deeply believe uh, that our public institutions need to be built for the digital age. And uh, this is not only important, it is urgent. Uh, technology is how policy value gets delivered to people. And our government needs to be capable of uh, shipping value, shipping results, uh, and outcomes effectively, fairly, transparently, quickly. Uh, and this needs to be true in the digital age. Um, many of these institutions were stood up as the country was industrializing after World War II. Um, we are now in a different uh, era. And I think this work, um, uh, the, the, the consequences both for doing this well and the consequences for not getting it right um, are my uh, are, are the thing that motivates me because uh, if we can get this right, uh, I think democratic institutions are going to be uh, in a much better position through this century and are going to be able to serve people uh, with the challenges that are coming, not the challenges we have today, the challenges that are also coming. Um, and if we don't get it right, a lot of the issues we see where trust in public trust in public institutions is low will just continue to erode and exas be exacerbated, uh, which is not a cost that we can pay as society. So um, those uh, that that is the thing uh, that really drives me uh, in my work at Nova. Yeah, plus wanting everything Rohan said that kind of centers the why for me personally around, you know the kind of historic arc we're in about uh, declining trust in public institutions and what uh, what the 
harms are or what the cost is of that, um, what that costs the public, what that costs underserved populations, um, what that costs us in terms of our ability to act on the coming challenges uh, that we're going to face um, at a systemic at a systemic level. Um, I think an additional lens I think I think about there, you know, that's been pretty centering through the years and as Nava has grown significantly as an organization is being able to do right by the team that we have brought into these problems, into these spaces, uh, being able to, um, you know, we talk a lot at Nava about leverage points, being able to be high leverage uh, against some of the systemic technical or structural or organizational or uh, policy challenges that our institutions are facing um, and being able to have a demonstrable progress, uh, being able to make some of the outcomes uh, inarguable um, or make some of the, the kind of ways of working um, in a more modern or more human-centered or more resilient way, make those things uh, feel uh, feel uh, irresistible or inevitable um, by uh, the kind of momentum we've built or the outcomes we've been able to demonstrate along the way. I think those are those are things that really center me um, these days. I think Rohan and I have joked before that if we weren't doing Nava, that we would be trying to work on these pro problems anyways, like that the kind of challenges that um, our country is facing during this moment in history, um, that the skills that we have uh, or the experiences that we have, um, these are some of the highest leverage things that we could be doing with our time in this particular moment. Your mention of uh, wanting to work in problem spaces that face this country is perhaps a great segue to get us into some of our main topic conversation. Uh, as folks might be aware, uh, you were both involved in the effort to respond to the rollout problems that happened with healthcare.gov. That was uh, a fairly loud moment uh, for folks, in the, especially those aware of the healthcare space. Uh, I'll throw a piece in the Atlantic in the episode description that is a good read if folks want to get kind of greater context on some of the story uh, y'all were involved in. But why did each of you want to jump into that effort? For me, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say up front that although today we're, we're kind of at a point where we can talk about um, Nava's history and Nava's aspirations, none of that, at least for me, existed <laughs> when we came to healthcare.gov to um, sort of pitch in. The, you know, it was a very simple um, uh, decision point for me, which is, you know, uh, the president's signature legislative achievement had been passed in 2010, the ACA. Uh, they had spent three years implementing it, and it was failing. And uh, it was failing very publicly. And I had uh, a set of skills that could contribute to it potentially not failing. Um, and, you know, there was no, at that time, sense of nobody was thinking about starting a company. Nobody was thinking about, you know, the future, how this might be connected to larger structural problems, the patterns of, of failures for this type of work. At least I was not thinking about that at all. It was simply, you know, the ask was, can you come help for two to three weeks? And the answer was yes, because 
um, this was important and I thought I could help move it forward. Um, and, uh, you know, th that was uh, an interesting experience for me because it, it introduced me to um, a sense of purpose that could be learned as opposed to just, you know, something you're born with or inherited from somewhere else. It's like, we, as we familiarized ourselves with the type of challenges and problems in the space, we developed that passion. We developed a greater understanding of, you know, what is the root cause here? What is the why uh, and the sources of uh, some of the problems that lead to something like healthcare.gov? But in terms of original motivation, uh, it was pretty practical. You know, we, we saw a big problem. You know, the president and the country needed that help. So you, you respond. Yeah, I think when I got the call, um, it was certainly not something planned or expected. Um, and but it was, you know, a challenge that was very visible. Um, you know, I think all of us who got involved had been seeing it in the news or hearing about it before getting the individual calls that brought us together. I remember at the time when I got my call, I was uh I ended up texting with uh, one of my old bosses, Mike Mugurski, uh, who was at that time the CTO of Code for America. And, you know, I was, I think, uh, you know, wondering out loud, you know, is this something, is this uh, basically like, is this a suicide mission? Is this actually going, are we actually going to solve some problems? Um, you know, or is it, you know, for show? Can I actually do this work? you know, what, what's kind of needed for this task. Uh, and I think Mike, I, I, my memory of this is like, Mike, just let me ramble on uh, around all the reasons or concerns um, not to. And I think his only response was, you know, well, could you make it worse? <laughs> um, and uh, I think that that was enough of a kernel of belief that, you know, that I personally could contribute something to this effort um, that got me involved. And I think like Rohan mentioned, I think, you know, it was not, you know, part of my personal career, you know, five-year plan to be working with and for um, government services or government programs. But after the experience of healthcare.gov, it was impossible to imagine otherwise. Um, it was impossible to imagine uh, other work that could be somehow more clarifying or purposeful uh, or meaningful uh, to work on in the future. From that situation, you eventually found yourselves in one where you were initially like firefighters as you got into that moment, responding to a crisis. And uh, I believe this was a phrase y'all used when we were talking about the episode kind of in prep, where you talked about going from that to becoming architects. You know, folks that are now building something that's meant to last beyond just a response. Can y'all talk a bit about the experience of going from that mindset over to the architect one? Yeah, that's a great question. I think some of the questions, so Mikey Dickerson was one of the other um, people involved in the in the tech surge effort and one of, was one of the first people called in. Uh, one of the questions as we were working as a team, you know, kind of fighting many of these fires and trying to make the changes that we were hoping would um, be impactful. One of the questions he posed to us was, 
you know, what, what do we need to build here for healthcare.gov so that the next year's open enrollment that, you know, a similar team wasn't just going to need to be called again, that, uh, that the healthcare.gov open and yearly open enrollment periods wouldn't just roll from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. And, you know, whatever we built was just kind of duct taping things uh, temporarily until, you know, the next surge in traffic or things like that. And that was a useful question for us that framed some of the more systemic things that we needed to do on healthcare.gov, like um, building a replacement for healthcare.gov's identity management system, which was causing the majority of the outages, rather than just, you know, patching something existing, but actually replacing something wholesale. Um, and, and thinking about the things that would get healthcare.gov as a, as a whole to a more resilient place. Um, but I think that line of thinking led us to, uh, led us as well to think about um, what, it, what it would mean to, uh, to stay um, or things like that. And I think Rohan can speak to that more. Something you mentioned there that I'd like to follow up on a little bit, if you don't mind, is uh, you mentioned yeah, the, the part of the story where you replaced the identity system as opposed to patching it. I think that's one of those situations where at the surface level, it may look like it's, say, more risk to replace a component because, you know, more effort, therefore more risk. But perhaps it's one of those unique situations where it's actually kind of counterintuitive or there's actually like a greater amount of risk in attempting to patch the thing. Can you talk a bit about, you know, how uh, how did you communicate about that, about that choice? And because uh, often it can be kind of tough to say, convince a stakeholder, go ahead and go with like the replacement strategy and, and see that it is actually like the less riskier option. Yeah, the, our, our approach at that time was to let the results speak, meaning it was, a, there was a lot, already a lot of attention and energy and time and money going into trying to understand where the problems were in the existing system, uh, you know, dealing with them. So that that problem was already being worked um, with a lot of attention and resources, et cetera. Uh, what we, our approach was to say, we think there's a better way uh, and we're just going to go ahead and, and ship what we think is a better alternative. And let's, let's put these things side by side. Um, so it, over the course of, um, you know, about approximately six months, depends how you measure it, but about, about six months with about four to five people, um, we built a replacement system uh, that used the same APIs so that other systems that integrated with the, the identity management system wouldn't really have to change. They just have to point at different endpoints. Um, and, uh, you know, we wanted to be able to put things side by side, such as uh, load testing results. So if you load test the existing system, you load test a new system, uh, what are the performance metrics? What's the error rate? You know, um, uh, how does the, the system scale to um, handle different load profiles and, and volume of load? Um, so uh, that, that was, our approach was to, you know, just be able to put things side by side and to allow decision makers to decide, you know, what was better. And we, 
we had an opinion, we advocated for our opinion, but what was also the case was we weren't going to advocate for our solution if it wasn't actually better. We were confident that our solution was better. It The results bore that out. But let's say there was a world in which, you know, we didn't develop something better. We wouldn't have tried to, tried to push it. Um, but given that we ended up being correct and the results bore that out, you know, we were able to take that to decision makers and say, look, here's, here's how we should do it. Uh, here's the plan for actually, you know, cutting over what that would look like. Um, ultimately, uh, they decided to go with the new system because we could prove using data and testing and demos that it was less risky than the existing system. Um, and we were able to cut over in the, in the course of a night, migrate all the production data without the loss of a single record, et cetera. So um, that was that was our approach. Keeping in the theme of making choices, toward the, the end of this process, uh, I gather you've formed a company, uh, one we've talked about uh, a few times here. I'd be curious to hear a bit about the why for that. You know, why take that step? Uh, were there other options that y'all were considering at the time? Backing up to the context uh, at that time. So... At the time when um, we as folks that started Nava, we were about 18 months into our journey of shipping products on healthcare.gov uh, that made the experience better, that made the site more reliable. Um, and at that time, you know, the community we were in was, was pretty small, the digital services community. USCS maybe had about, I think around five folks or so uh, 18F had about 10 folks or so. Um, we were around six folks. Um, so it was a pretty small, you know, set of people at that time. And what we saw was um, we saw momentum within the government on their being uh, advocating for a better way to structure, manage, run technology projects. Um, folks like Mikey Dickerson, uh, the founding team at USDS, uh, the folks at 18F, they they got it and they were kind of running with what needed to change on the government side. What we saw as a unique contribution that we could make is, first of all, we as a team have a track record. Uh, we have 18 months of experience shipping high quality products in a government context um, where we had to advocate you know, half of our work was advocating for our way of working, uh, which is uncomfortable if you've never worked that way before, right? Not being able to say, here's what we're going to ship six months from now. Um, so uh, what we sort of, if we had conversations as a team to sit down and say, hey, what's the future here? We all clearly had a passion. We all sort of were bit by that purpose bug um, and uh, became kind of hooked on you know, the, um, just the idea that our skills could be applied to work that was far more meaningful than building, uh, you know, ad products in Silicon Valley, frankly. Um, and the, uh, the decision to start a company really was, came from the idea that um, if the government efforts that were ongoing at that time were successful, they would need to work with uh, vendors who could work with them in good faith, who had the skills and the quality um, and who could be trusted not to uh, sort of 
just treat it like a stream of revenue, but to actually, you know, um, do what was right for users, do what was right for the work, steward the agency's responsibility. Um, we saw that being a, uh, a sort of critical function that had to exist, but that didn't exist. When we looked around, nobody else was playing that role. Um, so we thought, you know, we are positioned, we, we have a track record of working together, we like working together, let's fill that, that void that is going to be necessary, but is, um, you know, nobody's orienting to that today. And then we can pair with the people on the government side to, um, you know, ultimately drive the outcomes that, that we cared about. The organization is also unique in that it's a public benefit corporation. Can you all talk a bit about what that is for folks that might not be as familiar and why you made the choice to use that structure? Yeah, that's a great question. We're, yeah, so we're a public benefit corporation and we made that choice as we were talking about founding Nava because uh, the public benefit corporation designation was relatively new at that time in 2014, 2015. What it meant was, and you know, the intention of the PBC designation was that you could have a corporation that had a social charter or a public benefit mission that was baked into uh, its governance structure, that was baked into um, the kind of duties uh, of the shareholders. So instead of just, you know, a for-profit corporation that has a fiduciary duty to kind of return value to shareholders, um, that incorporating as a public benefit corporation would mean that we also had this parallel responsibility um, baked in at the deepest level of the organization to deliver on our mission um, to help serve the government and, and build these more resilient public institutions. It was a, it, it was a harder, it was a, I, I think a strange decision for us to make at the time there, you know, our lawyers didn't know what a public benefit corporation was. It's still, you know, there are not many PBCs, but we felt like it was, uh, you know, the government providing a designation that aligned with our values. Um, and if we were building an organization to work with government agencies and be active stewards of their um, missions and their desired outcomes, it would feel somehow contradictory to then ignore this corporate designation that was created to, to be in line with some of the same values that we shared. Um, so we felt like that was a way to make, you know, our, our mission or our values baked into something deeper than just, you know, a Google doc, um, but actually bake that into the structure of the corporation. So follow up on that, last statement about having the values be more than just a Google Doc. I, I think I recall from our kind of prep conversation that one of y'all used the phrase like we wanted our values to have teeth, which I think kind of uniquely applies to this sort of structure. Uh, how does a public benefit corporation uh, do that with, with a set of values in an organization like yours? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, we we did want our values to have teeth and the public benefit corporation designation, I think, allowed us to do so. Um, to the other point, I think Rohan mentioned around the kind of vendor ecosystem, we did see some of the dark incentives or negative incentives of the ecosystem pulling you towards, you know, prioritizing, maximizing revenue or bidding on 
anything at all costs um, under delivering for the government um, or, or kind of uh, not holding to some promises or commitments um, or not aligning with the, the vision or mission of the agencies you were serving. Um, so we saw that as a real risk. And I think in terms of having teeth, what being a PVC means is that, you know, uh, even if, and I, I use this as an example, you know, NAVA has no outside investors. The only shareholders of NAVA are current or former employees. So even if everyone at NAVA were to resign today and a fully new set of new CEO, new executive team, new anything like that, um, if we as past shareholders, as the kind of existing shareholders, but not even current staff, um, saw NAVA straying away from its stated public benefit mission uh, or stated kind of social charter baked into um, its incorporation, um, then we could uh, then we could litigate. We could kind of bring a suit to NAVA about failing to deliver on its uh, on its mission in the same ways that uh, activist shareholders in public companies you know litigate corporations for failing to maximize you know uh, revenue to to their shareholders and we felt like that you know that allowed us to make um, some of these commitments not just in good faith but with some with some backup um, that even if you know, if everything at NAVA changed hands, there were still some mechanisms for accountability uh, for this organization long-term. I'll add to that a little bit that uh, in addition to the accountability piece like Shah talked about, it's also the case that because these, um, you know, we have this dual commitment uh, at the deepest level to, um, to the mission and, and to shareholders that uh, the executive team is protected and able to make um, decisions in the public benefit that harm shareholders. That cannot be done in, um, it, it, in a traditional company, uh, you know, the, the mandate is to maximize shareholder value, to not damage shareholder value. Um, and shareholders can accuse, you know, the executive team, the board of um, making decisions that have harmed their interest. And it is in their, their fiduciaries. They have to, you know, steward the shareholders' interests. Um, we have a dual man mandate. And um, there are situations in which when there is a hard, you know, zero-sum trade-off between those two, um, uh, weak we are legally allowed to uh, pursue the mission at the expense of shareholder uh, value. Now, obviously, it's like we're not seeking out those <laughs> situations, but when push comes to shove, um, you know, there's some teeth there, legally speaking. Listeners might recall that in June of last year, we had the privilege of getting to chat with uh, someone named Mark Funkhauser to talk a bit about the impact uh, the pandemic has had on local government. And as it turned out, there's been a fair share of problems to solve and crises to respond to at those levels. I'll uh, toss an episode link in the description for folks that want to dive into that context and come back. As an organization that focused its energy on that space, how's the pandemic affected the work you've been doing with those government partners? 
I think part of our motivation to even operate um, at, at, at this level and work across multiple levels of government. Uh, we got our start in federal. Most of the companies sort of in our peer space purely operate federally. Um, one of the reasons why we made a conscious decision before the pandemic to support government at, at different levels is um, there are critical programs, mission critical programs that are run by state and local governments. Um, uh, you know, even if you're looking at U.S. safety net programs, approximately half of uh, programs that are sort of part of the um, U.S. safety net are administered by states. So it's a critical part of what affects people, uh, which is what we sort of center around when we decide, you know, where where do we want to work? Uh, obviously, the, the pandemic happened. Um, there were, um, you know, I, I think it is, it's telling that at exactly the moment in 2020, when unemployment in the country was at its highest rate since uh, World War II, that you had the virtual uh, simultaneous failing of about 54 unemployment insurance systems. These systems have had billions of dollars and decades of investment to um, to put them in. They should have been in a position where you know they were ready to meet the moment. Uh, they were not. So I think the um, uh, that is if you just take a big step back, you know, part of our motivation for um, go where the impact is, uh, it's natural for us to want to be involved here. Um, in terms of patterns we're seeing, you know, some, it, it's been an interesting learning experience for us to sort of compare and contrast our work at the federal level and our work at the state level. Some things are, um, uh, some things are shared. For example, uh, you see common uh, common challenges, such as you know how do you organize a complex technology project? That's not fundamentally different uh, between different levels of government. Um, but then there are interesting um, you know differences that you know we've been kind of pleasantly surprised to learn about. You know, for example, um, uh, with our work in Vermont. Uh, it, it's been interesting to see how much closer the civil servants feel to the communities they serve. Um, you know, everybody that works for state government in Vermont is a Vermonter. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively small state. Uh, when we're talking about things like user research and understanding, um, you know, the pain, the pain points, mentally, it's, um, you know, there's a much uh, closer feeling um, for, for a Vermont civil servant, I think, to their user base. Then, for example, you run a, a extremely large federal program that serves everybody. That's important, too, in a different way, of course. But um, uh, that's been, you know, an interesting sort of learning point for us as we think about our work at, at mul multiple levels. Yeah, Shaw, do you want to chime in? I'll, I'll think a little bit about some good examples there. Yeah, I think the a different thing to think about, and I think Rohan, you touched on it as well with the unemployment surge, is I think the the pandemic has disrupted 
the, the entire country in so many different ways. Uh, but it's also just revealed so many cracks and seams in our safety net that were already there, um, that were there for decades that I think anyone who's been on SNAP or Medicaid uh, or TANF or WIC could have told you about were, were true of their experiences of the program um, even prior to a pandemic. So I think what has been, I think, uh, I think there's that, uh, that saying, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. I think there's a much broader um, and more visceral um, sense of understanding of the cost of failure, um, the cost of not making some of these systemic changes, the cost of not thinking about business process and, you know, just focusing on technology um, or the cost of uh, focusing on business process uh, without thinking about policy. I think those those things have been borne out in in pretty staggering ways, um, and I think that's been uh, that point has been hammered home pretty well. Um, I think also the point around resilience has become um, closer to a lot of the agencies we speak to uh, as not a hypothetical resilience they need to build, um, but a real and pragmatic one um, that they need to build to be able to respond to the the kind of current crises uh, and, and the coming challenges that our public institutions are going to face. Something that I, I imagine both of you are well aware of working in this space is that at that point where you're delivering a service, uh, particularly using technology as an aid, that's very much a point where kind of like policy systems meet computer systems. And there's kind of problems that can be created by the implementation of both and also like the relationships they have with each other. Um, how, as you've been doing this work in in these in in these benefit systems, uh, how have you seen your role as as a partner where those things meet? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I think one of the ways in which we've grown is to understand. Um, you know, I think anybody who has experience in this space comes to understand that um, these are not technology problems. The technology itself is capable of meeting people's needs. You know, we're not inventing anything in, in the course of our work. We do have to be creative and solve lots of problems, but they're not, you know, technology R&D problems. Um, they, are, they are oftentimes complex issues at the intersection of multiple domains and uh, to... I think to the to the question you asked, you know, a lot of times we find, for example, business process to be intimately wrapped up with the way a particular uh, technology might enable, you know, a workflow, let's say, um, and uh, or to take other examples, you mentioned policy, the intersection of technology and policy, or to take another example, the intersection of technology and uh, uh, talent or labor, meaning, you know, the supply of, of people within the agency or outside the agency who can actually, you know, make a decision um, uh, or, um, you know, process a, a particular um, claim or, or um, uh, sort of request that comes in. So usually, you know, we, I, I think that 
the first thing we do um, and that we're quite good at is that we, we try to widen the aperture as much as possible. Um, so not starting from a place of like, you know, how do we, you know, get this type of technology, you know, injected here. We're pretty agnostic to technology and to techniques and tools. Uh, we start with the outcomes and we typically work backwards to say, okay, well, what's, you know, what's the ideal solution, not just from a technology perspective, but if we're setting this agency up for long-term success to serve its users, how would we do that? What would the ideal look like? What's stopping us from making that happen? Um, and then we go through a process uh, to try to, you know, block and tackle those issues, to create buy-in, uh, to to ask for feedback from the agency. There's oftentimes uh, subject, many subject matter experts within the agency that know the intricacies of policy operations, um, the way that things actually work that has to be factored into our plan. So we're iterating that, that plan sort of long before code is, is getting shipped is the architecture of that approach has to be sound. And there has to be um, you know, you can never impose a solution. You have to, um, you know, co-create. You have to, um, uh, I, I think USDS has a value that's built with, not for. Um, this is exactly the right way to not only build capacity uh, within the agency, but to also make it more likely that any solutions you develop um, can be operationalized well, and that can be maintained over the long term because it's the agency that holds that responsibility over the long term. So um, that's that's typically how we approach these complex problems that can often live at the intersection of yes, technology and policy, but also operations, you know, talent and labor, um, funding, uh, regulations, all sorts of other. Uh, things that contribute to uh, the complexity of these environments. A, a common thread in the conversation we've had so far is thought behind how one makes choices. So something I'd be curious to, to hear from y'all is how have the collective experiences you've had so far, uh, some of them we've talked about here in this conversation, fed into the way that y'all make decisions for and as an organization? Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, it's on, there, there's two sides of that, of how we make decisions. It's like how we make decisions in building the organization and how do we structure it and set us up for success to deliver on our mission uh, or make progress on it. And then on the other side, it's how do we continue to uh, be active stewards um, and play the role that uh, we feel is necessary to exist on the vendor side to help government agencies, you know, continue to serve their um, their publics on the organization building side. I think you know one one choice that I think uh, Rohan and I were reminded of recently was a choice to actually not build something um, that we uh, decided to make at Nava several years ago. You know, that identity management system that Rohan mentioned earlier that we uh, built to replace the existing identity management system on healthcare.gov. At some point, uh, you know, we also migrated Medicare.gov um, onto another instance of that same system, so that, you know, that was serving um, 
almost almost 70 million uh, user accounts across healthcare.gov and medicare.gov. At the time, you know, login.gov had just gotten started. It was a small small effort out of 18F. And there weren't uh, weren't as many kind of off the shelf products or products serving that space. ID.me had just started. Um, there was a conversation we had at the time of whether or not Nava should build a product for, uh, you know, a SaaS product around identity management and resell it back to the government. Um, and it was a it was a strange kind of decision to to sit with. And I think, you know, there were many potential financial upsides of a decision like that. To Rohan's point earlier about you know, fiduciary responsibilities. Um, but I think when we played that decision out, we felt like this was, I think, around 2016 or 2017, probably. When we played that decision out, we felt like if we built a SaaS product around identity management or identity proofing, sold it to government, uh, we might be able to uh, earn, a ton, uh, earn a ton in terms of profit um, we might be able to um, solve a specific problem that the government was experiencing at the moment. Uh, but over the long term, I think Rohan, you know, said to said to us, you know, after thinking about it for a while, he said, you know, over the long term, our interests and the government's interests would diverge. Um, over the long term, at some point, you know, we would want to maximize lock-in to our product for the agencies that we had as customers. We would want to monetize the user data that we were accumulating on behalf of the government and reselling back to the government. Um, and over the long term, our interest in building a kind of SaaS product along those lines and, and kind of privatizing this piece um, of government data would, would not align with the interests of the public. Um, so we decided not to build that. Uh, we decided not to go down that direction. I think we could do that because we were a public benefit corporation. Uh, I think that made the answer easy uh, rather than you know a conflicted one. Um, and it's been, I think, pretty sobering actually to see some of the recent conversation around ID.me and, and IRS announcing that they're moving away from it because you know, in many ways it's played out almost exactly like we were afraid it would have if we had gone down a similar path. Um, so I think that's that's a kind of choice in the negative. It's not something we chose to build. It's not something we chose to do with the organization. It's something we made a decision not to do several years ago. But I think that's been telling over the last few months, watching some of the concern um, and risks raised and conflicts of interest be raised uh, that I think have been, uh, that have helped us reflect on how we made that decision then and you know what factors we were taking in um, and how that has kind of played out in ways that, uh, that we were concerned might play out for NAVA. That's on one side. Um, I think in terms of, you know, uh, choices we've made that have impacted, you know, our ability to make progress on the mission, something that has we have learned and I think have made a choice around is beginning to, we've started over the last couple of years hiring people with some of the policy and program experience um, 
uh, or you know, with more policy or program experience uh, on the actual programs that we're working with. And I think that doesn't, you know, NAVA is not, you know, a policy think tank. NAVA is not, you know, trying to kind of direct that level of work or participate in that level of work. But recognizing that, you know, to Rohan's earlier point, you know, like so many of the uh, visible technology problems, what is underneath those or the root causes of those are business process challenges, our lack of clarity in regulations, our contradicting reg regulations or legislative or policy um, challenges. I think having that experience on our side and partnering with the agencies that we're working for has helped us build a better translation layer so that we're able to meet with, you know, policy and operations folks on the government side, deeply, deeply understand their needs and not just bring a technology first mindset into those settings. Um, and then figure out, you know, as Rohan has talked about, working backwards from the policy goals or the program goals, you know, is technology even the way we should solve this? Or are there simple business process changes um, that could make sense here? Um, so I, I think using using kind of technology not as uh, as a hammer and thinking of everything as nails. I think that's been I think something on um, making choices in how we've structured and what type of talent we've brought into the organization that I think has helped us better serve our, our mission. A term that's been used uh, quite a few times in, in our conversation is the term outcomes, as a, in particular something that you want to focus on. In my experience, it, it can be easy to like lose track of those or get lost and the noise of all the other stuff that's involved with whether we're talking about a project or the way our organization's running, and it can kind of get wedged into the decision-making systems that are there. Uh, how have you all gone about maintaining focus on that outcome, in quotes, that, that we've been talking about in the face of all of that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I, I think that's true, that the comp as you get, as you grapple with the complexity of these environments and, and of the execution of this work that you can sort of lose the forest for the trees if, if you're not uh, intentional about maintaining a through line to why you're there. Um, for us, I think it starts with how we define success. So as a public benefit corporation, um, we're uh, like any other uh company looking to run a healthy business. But in addition to that, um, we, part of our definition of success, uh, and this is something that I explained to all as we onboard new folks to the company, um, I explained to, um, to all our folks who join, is that um, part of our definition of success is advancing our opinion of structural change. And we have a systems-based uh, view into what structural change means. Um, this is a this is a framework that we've developed based on our experience. It's pretty simple. It says that we we transform service experiences to be uh, fast, accessible, and simple. We transform program outcomes to be effective for their beneficiary population. And we transform agency technology and operational postures to be adaptable in a world that is only changing more and more rapidly. So all of our work contributes to at least one of these layers of structural change. So uh, when we 
when we look at how the company makes decisions, how we hire, what our culture is, what we, you know, uh, when you look at all of the things that we call back to regularly as a company, as project teams, um, we, we are sort of constantly maintaining that through line to the, the outcomes that we are here to drive. Um, and that has to exist at a corporate level in addition to, you know, at a team level, because to your original point, teams can get so close to their problems that you start to operate locally. And uh, there's nothing, you know, that, that, that can be fine, but it can also be easy to sort of lose that through line to, to what matters. But at the company level, across the projects we've done that we have today and that we, you know, will work on in the future, that theory of change, that idea, that opinion about what structural me structural change looks like, what it means, how our work and business decisions ultimately ladder to advancing that theory of change, um, that keeps us centered on uh, a framework that is above the level of any specific initiative that we might be driving. So, you know, and, and then, yes, our, our mission is aligned to, with that, our values are aligned with that, our culture is aligned with that, what we, you know, celebrate internally as a company, what we spotlight is, is uh, ladders up to that, the way we hire ladders up to that. So um, it's a framework that uh, keeps the important things, the outcomes front and center. And then uh, we work backwards from that. And we as a team try to be a learning organization and understand how do we get there? Um, and that's, you know, the work that, that we're all engaged in. I want to thank you both for taking the time to come on Civic Tech Chat today. I have no doubt that folks listening are going to find some nuggets to learn from this conversation. Again, uh, thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.